This is Tanakhcast. Welcome back to Tanakhcast. This is episode 40, the book of Numbers, chapters 32 through 36. Chapter 32 begins with the tribes of Reuven and God asking, Um, yes, are you going to finish that croissant? Because all the newly conquered lands east of the Jordan have ample fields for grazing. So they wonder aloud to Moshe and Elazar the high priest and all the leaders of the people. Any objections to us staying here? Which evokes a pretty strong reaction from God and from Moshe who yell at the Reubenites, Rube, Rubes, Rubanians, and the men of God. You want everyone to go and fight on the west bank of the Jordan while you stay back here and watch? What do you think this will do for morale? And to think that I thought I was done with dealing with ingrates and jerks in the previous generation, it seems that ingratitude and jerkiness is congenital. God is really going to have a field day dealing with you next. So the men of Reuven and God come up with a counterproposal. Let us set up our flocks and house our women and children and then we will go and fight with our brothers. And they pledge not to return to the East Bank until all the fighting ceases and all the land that God promised them is secured. Moshe seals the deal in the presence of Eleazar and Yehoshua and the elders of all the tribes of Israel. So let it be written. So let it be done. So Reuven and God and half of the tribe of Manasseh inherit the former kingdoms of Bashan and the Amorites. They proceed to further efface any traces of the indigenous peoples by renaming all the important landmarks, towns, and cities. Chapter 33 recounts the marching order and marching orders of the Jews as they prepare for the final push into the land of Israel. When they finally encamp on the east bank of the Jordan with their eyes looking west toward Jericho, God tells Moshe to tell the Jews that when they conquer Canaan, they are to utterly dispossess all the natives and destroy all their holy sites. Then... They are to parcel out the land to each tribe by drawing lots. But, God tells Moshe, if the Jews do not utterly drive out the locals, quote, those who are left of them shall be as barbs in your eyes, as spines in your sides. They will assault you on the land that you are settling in, and it shall be as I thought to do to them, so I will do to you. So get it done! Chapters 34 and 35 define the borders of the promised land, sets out the terms of the land lottery that will define each tribe's inheritance, and all the set-asides which will be set aside for the Levites, who, though a tribe, will not get a tribal inheritance. Instead, the Levites will get 48 towns and the associated pasture lands. God also tells Moshe to set up, quote, towns of asylum, three on the east bank of the Jordan and three on the west, as places to where individuals who kill inadvertently can flee the blood redeemer who seeks to avenge the death of their kin. This town of asylum will offer protection to the killer until the death of the high priest. And then the Hunger Games continue. Chapter 36 recounts the dick move of reactionary patriarchs to erode Moshe's ostensibly feminist decision to let daughters inherit their father's property. The tribal elder of Menashe, leader of the tribe of a certain dead guy named Slavchad, lobbies Moshe to amend his earlier ruling, as he claims that the ruling threatens the integrity of the inheritance given to Menashe. How, you might say? Well, if Tzlovchad's daughters exercise agency and opt to marry men from another tribe, their land might end up as part of another tribe's inheritance, which would reduce Menashe's God-given lot. <laughs> Oh, 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 oh. 
This time, Moshe does not need to consult with God for an answer. He comes up with the following gem all by himself. He tells the people that from now on, in the case where daughters inherit, the daughters will have to marry men from their own tribe. And so the daughters of Tzlovchad, Machla, Tirza, Chogla, Milka, and Noah married sons of their uncles, and the patriarchy lived happily ever after. So, there's a lot to talk about in this week's portion. Let's get to it. I want to talk uh, this episode about three literary terms. Actually, I think there might be seven. Well, it doesn't matter. In the context of a minor plot point in chapter 33, the list of locations for the staged march. From Ramses on the 15th day of the first new moon, recapping the roots since the morning after the plague of killing of the Egyptian firstborn, which in and of itself is a miracle, as that would imply the folks were up for a long march in the morning after eating a whole Pesach sacrifice. So off they go to Sukkot, then Etam, then Pihachirot, then Migdol, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then, and then. And then the question that comes to mind, at least in my mind, is why bother? Why go into such excruciating detail about the roots since day one? Verisimilitude, perhaps. Literary term number one. Verisimilitude, the appearance of being true or real. As it is, we've suspended disbelief that such information, although appreciated in its attempt to layer a semblance of truthy factness to this tale, comes across as gratuitous, and when I say we, perhaps I should just say I, and when I say I, perhaps I should unpack that assertion about suspension of disbelief. Literary term number two. Samuel Taylor Coleridge coined the term suspension of disbelief in 1817. He was referring to the writerly knack for infusing, quote, human interest and a semblance of truth into a fantastic tale, whereby the reader would suspend judgment concerning the implausibility of the narrative. This coinage came much later than the Tanakh, but a lot happened to literature, to books, and to text since the Tanakh. So I guess the first step in the evolution of text is the development of genres. Literary term number three. Genres, defined by the Oxford English Dictionary as, quote, a style or category of art, music, or literature, began with the Greeks. The Greeks argued that the type of person an author was would be directly responsible for the type of poetry they wrote, and further argued that certain metrical forms were suited only to certain genres. Or to flip it, we readers can expect certain things from certain texts if they reside within a specific genre. Except that, even then, critics realized that some texts would not fit so easily into one genre because of their content. Aristotle, for example, thought the Iliad was an epic, but could also be considered a tragedy as well. What to do, what to do. So you fast forward to the 18th century and do this because the Romans basically adopted the Greek system whole hog and the church, ever fascinated with platonic concepts, maintained the status quo. With the Enlightenment's assault on existing dogmas, the wider dissemination of texts, thanks to the printing press, the number of genres, as well as the notions of what defined a genre, were being revised and rethought. Take, for example, the most basic genre distinction readers navigate today. When we pick up, say, uh, J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban, we would find it in the fiction section in the library. Yes, a library. A place for books, which signals to us, the reader, that what we have in our hands inside the covers of this book is made up. That is one of the conventions of the genre of fiction. Literary term number four. And as much as we would like it to be so, there is no Hogwarts school of witchcraft and wizardry, and though Harry Potter's tombstone has turned up in a British military cemetery in Romley, 
the boy who lived does not have a verified Twitter account, which is one of the more salient indicators that a person actually exists. Am I disappointed with this realization? Not at all, because I know that being fiction, it is a lovely story, richly textured in its world-building, but wearing a bit thin in its characters and plot. And if I ended up at King's Cross Station, I would not expect to find Platform 9 and 3 quarters there, although some folks have gotten together to put up a plaque and a gift shop. But if I'm reading Doris Kearns Goodwin's Team of Rivals... I have a different set of expectations and disappointments. Every individual mentioned in her book was a real person, as it is a work of non-fiction. Literary term number five. The places she describes appear on conventional maps. I can go visit the site of one of the most famous Lincoln-Douglas debates, aptly named Lincoln-Douglas Square in Alton, Illinois. I can also make a pilgrimage to Springfield, Illinois, to see Lincoln's home or presidential library or tomb. And yes, even though there are also a bevy of plaques all over Illinois State Capitol, they describe actual events. And we hew to these distinctions religiously. Recall the volcanic rage poured down upon James Fry, author of A Million Little Pieces in 2006, when it came out that this much-fetid memoir of his experiences during his treatment for alcohol and drug addiction was um, fictionalized. He went on Oprah Winfrey to defend the veracity of his work. His publisher, Nan Talese, was also there to defend her decision to classify the book as a memoir. As David Carr of the New York Times wrote about that episode, both Mr. Fry and Miss Talese were snapped in two like dry winter twigs. Subsequent to his appearance and flambéing on Oprah, Fry and publishers Random House reached a tentative legal settlement whereby readers who felt they had been defrauded by Fry's A Million Little Pieces because they thought it was a non-fiction memoir when in fact it was a work of personal fiction, would be offered a refund. But in order to get that refund, you would have had to submit a proof of purchase, pieces of the book itself, as in page 163 from the hardcover or the front cover from the paperback, and complete a sworn statement indicating that you had purchased the book under the assumption that it was a memoir. But meaningful genre distinctions for you might not resonate as well with me. I might not have minded the blurring of lies and truth in Fry's work. Or there might have been a time when the distinction between fiction and nonfiction was less relevant. In other words, the horizons of expectation have shifted. Literary term number six. This term comes from reception theory and is defined by the Oxford Dictionary of Literary Terms as, quote, the set of cultural norms, assumptions, and criteria shaping the way in which readers understand and judge a literary work at a given time. It may be formed by such factors as the prevailing conventions and definitions of art, for example, decorum, or current moral codes. Such horizons are subject to historical change so that a later generation of readers may see a very different range of meanings in the same work, and revalue it accordingly. So, the audience of the Book of Numbers, when it was released, the first Jews to be exposed to this account, surely had very different horizons and different reactions to the many other instances in the narrative where exactness or verisimilitude, like caution, was thrown to the wind such as why not name which pharaoh, or the many talking animals, and when I say many, I mean more than one, because really more than one is enough. But even with accepting the very different horizons and all, I'm still puzzled by the detail and column inches dedicated to the root, or for that matter, the similar detail about the river systems that irrigated the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2. Perhaps one could regard it as an illusion. Literary. 
A casual reference in literature to, in this case, a place used to establish a tone, create an implied association, or bring the reader into a world of experience outside the limitations of the story itself. Or in the case of the Book of Numbers, to bring the world into the realm of the story, as many medieval maps did as well. One of the best examples of this elusiveness is the map known as the Catalan Atlas, designed by a Majorcan Jew, Abraham Kreskes, and his son Yehuda in 1375. Prince John of Aragon, the future King John I of Aragon, commissioned Kreskes to make a set of nautical charts which would extend the normal geographic range of contemporary Portland charts to cover, quote, east and west, and everything that from the Straits of Gibraltar leads to the west. Consisting of six leaves, the first two leaves contain a compilation of cosmographical, astronomical, and astrological texts translated into Catalan. The four remaining leaves make up the map. The first pair of map leaves form the eastern or oriental portion of the Catalan atlas. They integrate numerous religious references as well as combine the typical medieval Mape Mundi, which locates Jerusalem as the world's center, with other discoveries from travel literature of the time, specifically Marco Polo's Book of Marvels and the travels and voyage of Sir John Mandeville. So alongside the real land of Catayo, or China, the map shows the city of Shambhalith, or Beijing, there are also allusions to Moshe's parting of the Red Sea, Mount Sinai, Mount Ararat, the Tower of Babel, the Magi following the star, Christ the King, Mecca, Babylon, the Queen of Sheba, the home of the mythical realm of the Amazons, the Sirens, the kingdom of Gog and Magog, Alexander the Great, and scenes of pygmies battling storks. But here's the thing. Kresge's map, as well as the other maps produced by his contemporaries in the Majorcan cartographic school, were astonishingly precise for the time so sailors could conceivably use this atlas to get around the Mediterranean, where it might be challenging is if you wanted to go farther afield. I guess the same could be said for the Book of Numbers, and perhaps for the Tanakh. If you want to chart a path on the level of the individual, it proves to be a good, reliable guide. However, you might get into some trouble if your ambitions are bigger and involve other people. Then you might want to avoid the stork battling pygmies or fruit-offering snakes or shipbuilding family men or pillars of fire, or pillars of smoke, or flowering staffs. As always, you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash Tanakhcast, T-A-N-A-K-H-C-A-S-T, or at thenextjew.com. Or you can leave a comment, question, or comment at the iTunes Store, or at Stitcher Smart Radio, or at SoundCloud. And while you're at it, why not leave a review? That way, other folks who are looking for a little Tanakh learning might discover this humble podcast and join in the fun. You're invited to come back and join us next week-ish for episode 41 when we launch the book of Deuteronomy, chapters 1 through 3. Y'all come back now, here. Yeah?